All right, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am excited to be joined by Dr. Michael Greger. Dr. Michael Greger is a founding member and fellow of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and internationally recognized speaker and physician on nutrition, his science-based nonprofit, nutritionfacts.org, offers a free online portal hosting more than 2,000 videos and articles on health topics. If you haven't been over there, go check out the website. A lot of great videos uh, diving deep into the science on all kinds of health topics. And uh, I always gain a lot of benefit by watching those videos. So make sure you guys go check them out. If you haven't already, he's presented at the conference on world affairs, testified before Congress, was even invited as an expert witness at Oprah Winfrey's defense and the infamous meat defamation trial. All proceeds uh, Dr. Greger receives from the sales of his books and speaking are donated directly to charity. And uh, today we're talking about his newest book, How Not to Age. I've got an advanced copy here. By the way, we're going to dig into this. There's a lot of golden nuggets in here that is going to help all of you learn many of the things you can do to help your body thrive and live a long time and healthy. So Dr. Gregor, thanks for coming on, man. Great to have you back here on the podcast. I'm so excited to be back. I hope to help inspire some of your viewers to live longer, better lives. So uh, to get out of the way, my first question is, isn't that title, How Not to Age, is that a bit of a, of a misnomer or almost unobtainable? Because don't we all age? I, yeah, you, just as my earlier book, How Not to Die, was not about living forever. It's not about, it's not how to not die, but how not to die, as in prematurely in pain after a long chronic disabling illness. Similarly, How Not to Age has a similar premise, not about immortality, but how to age with vitality and grace and not suffer from the ravages of infirmity and disease. I think that's pretty important today, right? So many people, I think, are aging prematurely, are, even though our statistics seemingly have increased lifespan, but have we increased health span? And even recently, there are some statistics showing that, that this next generation may actually be the first in a very, very long time, maybe first ever, to live less than their parents. So, you know, people have been saying, oh yeah, but we've been living longer. It's like, well, have we been living healthier? And is that longer trend actually continuing? What did, right, it's not what just about, about adding years to your life, but life to your years. In fact, you know, when asked, how long do you want to live? Um, in a survey offered the choice between 85 years old, 120, 150, or indefinitely, most people actually choose 85. But if you reframe the question and say, well, wait a second, no, no, no. How long do you wish to live in guaranteed mental and physical health? Oh, then all of a sudden it goes, it switches to an unlimited lifespan, right? This raised the concept of healthy, of health span, the period of life spent in good health, free from chronic disease and disability. I mean, uh, what's the point of living longer if you can't enjoy it vibrantly? And indeed, we have been living longer in sickness, not in health. Um, our long, our life expectancy in the United States peaked in 2014. Unfortunately, has trended down since then, uh, thanks to the obesity epidemic, such that uh, for the first generation ever, as you noted, um, raising the uh, a generation with a lower life expectancy than their than their parents, and that was before COVID, which came along, knocked about two years off our life expectancy. So. 
Um, we got a long way to go. And so perfect timing for the, the book to come out and hopefully help some people. So in the book, you talk about genetics and I think more importantly, epigenetics. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about epigenetics, what that is, why it's important for people who don't know what it is or understand the science of epigenetics and how that plays a important role into disease prevention and increasing health span and lifespan? Yeah, so uh, in, uh, according to studies on identical twins, only about 25% of the variation in lifespan between individuals has to do with our genes. So the question is, well, what can we do over the majority of which we have control? And even in that genetic predisposition, even in that minority, there's this concept called epigenetics, which is characterized by a, the pattern of DNA methylation can be thought of as kind of the lens through which our genetic information is filtered. Uh, genes can be turned on and turned off um, uh, based on how we eat and how we live. Um, thankfully, epigenetic changes are reversible. So even if that kind of lens becomes cloudy with age, maybe able to kind of polish it back into focus. And this involves a number of things, uh, uh, the vitamins that have to do with our methylation capacity, like folate, as well as caloric restriction, uh, physical activity, smoking cessation, um, uh, eating more fruits and vegetables. These are all things that can slow what's called the epigenetic clock, which is this pattern of changes with time, which is actually better predicts our uh, remaining lifespan than our actual biological age. Yeah, uh, well said. And you know, I, I'm reminded of uh, Bruce Lipton in my documentary about cancer. And he said, look, genes don't cause cancer. There's no gene that causes cancer. He said, if genes were the cause of cancer, which a lot of people are told today, and that's what they believe, and is leading a lot of women, I think, unnecessarily to chop off their breasts. Unfortunately, he said, look, women with the BRCA1 gene, if that gene caused cancer, then 100% of women would have cancer who have that gene, but only 50% of women with the BRCA1 gene ever end up with cancer. And so that's why, you know, understanding the science of epigenetics is so important is because what is it in our physiological mechanisms within the body that we can turn on and off? We can upregulate or downregulate these genes, these cancer genes, these longevity genes, you know, genes that lead to other chronic diseases, chronic inflammatory conditions within the body, right? Yeah, and it's important to recognize this uh, so-called latency stage of cancer. So uh, for something like colorectal cancer, latency phase is 50 years, meaning the cancer starts 50 years before diagnosis, before it actually shows up. And so it's all about just slowing down the doubling rate of uh, tumor size, and so, for example, you know, if you do autopsy studies on accident victims, about a third of men by their 40s have prostate cancers, two thirds by their 60s, um, about 40% uh, of women in their 40s have microscopic breast cancers. Um, uh, as we get older, nearly 100% of us develop these little thyroid cancers. But who cares? If we get diagnosed in 100 years, we don't expect to be around that long. It's all about slowing down the rate so we die with our cancer rather than from our cancer. Um, so, for example, autopsy rates in Japan and the U.S., very similar uh, prostate cancer rates, but the rate of death from prostate cancer um, in, uh, in Japan was 40 times lower 
um, than it was in the United States. Unless, of course, they moved to the United States, start eating and living like Americans, then they start living and uh, dying like Americans as well. And so it's not the genetics, it's about the role that um, our diet environment can play over the expression of that genetics, right? Genes load the gun, but environment pulls the trigger. Now, I haven't seen that specific study from Japan on prostate cancer that you were talking about, but I'm curious if those who are dying from uh, prostate cancer at much 40 times lower rates, as you said, in Japan than the U.S., I wonder if that has anything to do with the treatment options that people are choosing as well versus there if they're choosing more, you know, not going down necessarily the conventional path towards treatment and treating things more naturally or not, I don't know, versus here where if you have prostate cancer, you know, we know the majority of people who go in with a diagnosis to an oncologist are going for conventional treatment. And with prostate cancer, conventional treatment, I know is very actually ineffective with uh, chemotherapy and radiation, especially, you know, prostate cancer is one of the really tough ones. They, well, they, they have 10 times lower incidence of being diagnosed with prostate cancer, mm. even though on autopsy, they actually have the same cancer. They just don't grow fast enough to, 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 to come up, to become noticeable or to become dangerous within one's lifetime. So, wow. you know, we have this sense that we're preventing, uh, you know, what can we do to prevent cancer? But I mean, since many of the, for solid tumors, like breast, colon, lung, et cetera, the latency time can be decades. So the day we're diagnosed with cancer, it's like, oh, yesterday I didn't have cancer, now I have cancer. No, you've had cancer for decades. And so many of the things we do to prevent cancer, we're actually treating it, little do we know. Right. Um, and so that's why the earlier we can get on board and start cleaning up our diet and lifestyle, the better, because you know uh, a lot of the, there's these lurking little cancers that we can suppress their growth or accelerate their growth depending on how we live our lives. So you, you kind of rushed past it. I'd love for you to spend a little bit more time on some of the things that you've identified and you talked about in the book that actually can turn down these cancer genes or other uh, you know, chronic, chronic disease genes in the body and turn up or turn on some of the genes that are associated with you know, longevity and health and vitality. Yeah. So um, uh, in terms of uh, things we can do to slow the gr uh, growth of cancer, there is a growth promoting uh, hormone uh, called IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1, um, which is uh, boosted predominantly by the consumption of uh, excess amounts of animal protein that increases the levels of IGF-1 and that increases the risk of, of uh, a number of cancers across the board. Another cancer-promoting hormone that's involved with uh, enzyme, excuse me, that's involved with um, uh, with aging's mTOR. Um, this is uh, similarly has a pro-cancer effect as well as a age-accelerating effect, um, and we can slow that down through what's called methionine restriction, which is again either uh, reducing our protein across the board uh, down to recommended levels or switching from animal um, protein sources to predominantly plant protein sources that'll reduce our methionine intake and, uh, and, and slow down this age accelerating cancer accelerating hormone. And so IGF one kind of gets a bad rap, right? I mean, in, in my decade plus in cancer research, a lot of the 
uh, talk is in the in the research is you know as as IGF one increases your your risk for cancer goes up so we want to reduce IGF one but IGF one is is a hormone in the body that's really important for bone and tissue growth right like it's it's not all bad just like um, and and I know you're not saying that but for people tuning in it's I even used to have this kind of subconsciously like oh IGF one is bad but it's it's only when it is uh, at elevated levels for prolonged periods of time right. Right. So look, when we're children, of course, that's the whole point. We don't want growth hormones. That's where mTOR and IGF-1 can come play a role. It's only when we've reached adult height, that's when we need to dial down some of these uh, growth hormones because those that constant growth signaling when we've already achieved our maximum height can fuel the growth of of tiny tumors within our bodies. And so, for example, there's uh, something called Laurent syndrome, which is a lifelong IGF-1 deficiency. Um, and they actually grow to a very short stature, but they're essentially cancer-proof. Um, not a single uh, case of cancer death um, has been reported. Um, uh, and uh, and uh, they're also protected from a wide range of, uh, of, of chronic diseases. But of course, so how do you get the best of both worlds where you actually grow to a normal stature, but you still be able to downregulate um, this, uh, this growth hormone? Well, you have regular IGF um, uh, um, uh, signaling until you reach adult stature. And then really it's all about downregulating these growth hormones um, not enough to interfere with muscle mass secretion, um, but enough to decrease the pro-tumor signaling. And is that an easy test people can get to find out their IGF-1 levels? If yeah, you can get your IGF-1 levels. Um, you want to get it in combined with your um, IGF-1 binding protein levels because there's two. It's kind of like testosterone in the body. There's a there's a um, there's free testosterone, then bound testosterone. Um, similar with there's IGF-1 and also a binding protein that kind of um, a snatch squad of proteins to kind of reduce IGF-1 levels to protect your body from cancer. Um, so you want high levels of the binding protein, decreased levels of the uh, of the the growth pro the growth hormone, and literally within two weeks of going on a uh, a predominantly plant based diet along with mild um, exercise like walking, you can significantly decrease IGF-1 levels such that if you drip the blood of people before and after two weeks eating healthier um, onto either breast women onto breast cancer cells or men onto prostate cancer cells, you can significantly decrease the growth of that cancer, uh, making your bloodstream essentially more inhospitable to cancer, um, increasing cancer death rates by 20% just after two weeks. And we think it's IGF-1 because if you add back to the culture medium, the IGF-1 you banished from your system because you started eating and living healthier, all of a sudden, you erase that anti-cancer effect. Yeah, it's powerful. Um, I know you wrote about a study um, that higher IGF-1 levels were only associated with animal protein intake. And in fact, plant protein seemed to decrease IGF-1 levels. Do you remember that study and, and how it was? I don't have it in front of me, but I could pull it up uh, if you need me to. But do you remember, do you remember that study and what, uh, exactly what it said? Yeah, there's a whole series of studies um, that show that at at sufficiently high protein levels, it doesn't matter whether it's animal or plant, you're going to increase IGF-1 levels. If only when you get down to, uh, to moderate levels of protein intake, recommended levels of protein intake, like 0.8 grams per healthy gram body weight, does it matter whether you're eating animal protein, plant protein at those levels? Animal protein does indeed increase it. And plant protein either has 
a neutral effect like soy protein, which is very kind of similar in amino acid profile to animal proteins, or non-soy proteins actually decrease, actively decrease IGF-1 levels. What about for athletes? So someone who's actually exercising, you know, daily, maybe lifting weights, they're, you know, trying to build more muscle mass, they're, you know, taking more protein to increase IGF-1, right? They're trying to actually increase the hormones that are going to, you know, repair and regenerate and rebuild. They're trying to increase testosterone naturally and HGH and these kinds of things naturally. Um, are they at the same risk uh, of increased IGF-1 if they're on a higher plant protein than, let's say, somebody who's not doing as much uh, exercise? So that, so the concern going into this, certainly go, when I started looking into the book, is that, okay, well, we know um, the downsides of IGF-1 in terms of fueling cancer growth, but what about the upsides? of IGF-1 on like physical capacity as we get older. So there might there be a balancing act. Um, but there was a, um, but there's a, a Mendelian randomization study, uh, which is basically, uh, you know, people are effectively randomized at birth in terms of which sperm meets which egg um, to either have higher or lower lifelong IGF-1 levels. And so then it's kind of luck of the draw, regardless of what you eat or how you live. And there does not appear to be any difference in physical capacity as we age for those who have higher or lower IGF-1 levels. And there was actually an interventional trial in postmenopausal women um, who injected themselves um, with IGF-1 for a year compared to placebo, actually found no change in lean mass, no change in muscle strength uh, compared to the placebo group, um, and uh, no change in bone mineral density. Um, and so, do you know, if they uh, were so, exercising, do you know if they, those women were exercising on that study or not? Um, I don't remember if, uh, what they if there was kind of an enforced exercise regimen of that or not. Cause I'm sure that, that would suggest make, that that the IGF, make a difference. Yeah. Well, but, but it would suggest at least the IGF one alone, right. um, uh, does not appear to make a difference for, uh, muscle bone, or at least additional IGF-1, which me it would suggest, well, hey, we can kind of get maybe the best of both worlds by uh, trying to reduce levels. Gotcha. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to know or to see a study like that where they did compare, you know, people working out and increasing IGF-1 versus people not working out, because we know bone density has a lot to do not only with nutrition but also with putting the bones under continuous stress, you know, load bearing, right? By putting a bar on your back and back squatting or doing any kind of resistance weight training, especially as you age, you know, we know that one of the, the worst things for people in their 70s and 80s that ends up in the hospital and ends up killing a lot of people, unfortunately, um, is falling down and breaking a hip, you know? My uh, father just turned 70. And the one thing about him, I think that's helped him so much, even though he's gone through a lot of really toxic, bad habits over his life. He's, you know, been on a healthier diet the last few years, but he's gone on and off of it. Um, you know, his nutrition has not been that great for 50, 60 years, but he's always worked out his whole life. And so I bet if we were to measure his bone density, it's probably higher than most people in their seventies because he's worked out his whole life and he's fallen so many times, like in the bathtub, like hard, you know, hitting really hard things. And I'm always surprised, like nothing ever breaks. And I just, you know, I have to assume it's because of how, you know, he's been lifting weights for so long. It's, it's helped his, uh, helped him a lot. So 
Anyway, weight bearing exercise absolutely can improve uh, bone strength, but because osteoporotic fracture is more of a function of falls rather than bone density, about 85% of fall risk, it's nothing to do with bone mineral density. It's all about fall prevention, single most thing we can do. And how do we prevent falls? Lower limb strength training and balance training. Um, so resistance exercise specifically to maintain uh, that that lower limb strength so you don't end up falling. And so then regardless of how strong your bones are, um, uh, you're not going to break them. Well, that's huge. You talk about exercise a lot in the book as well. And so let's say for, you know, for people who are, um, you know, 50, 60 and older who are trying to prevent ending up in the hospital for broken bones for from falling, you know, trying to have more energy as they age, feel better, less pain, less fatigue, um, you know, be that 70, 80, 90 year old person with good energy and vitality. What are some of the exercise protocols that they should be implementing on a regular basis? Yeah, the the health benefits of exercise really are overwhelming, not just about improving muscle mass and strength, physical performance, lowering the risk of falls, much more than that, improves cognition, enhances mood, can treat depression, improves artery function, erectile function, insulin sensitivity, overall quality of life. Exercise is medicine. And uh, although it's important to recognize that any amount of exercise is better than none, um, uh, there are increasing benefits to exercise that max out at, in the very least, 90 minutes of moderate intensity exercise a day or 45 minutes of vigorous activity. It's possible there are greater gains after that. There just aren't studies looking at enough people that actually exercise more than that. But there are progressive increases all the way at least up to 90 uh, minutes for moderate and 45 for vigorous. This is in addition um, to balance training, um, in addition to uh, resistance training, um, particularly important for for older men and women. Although, you know, adding uh, in younger men and women is different, but um, the elderly adding excess protein, like protein powders and shakes to uh, to, uh, to men and women does not actually increase uh, bone mass, bone strength, uh, performance. Um, and so, but what does? Resistance exercise. Um, weight training. I mean, so that so critically important as we age, so we don't lose muscle mass and become sarcopenic or or, or have excessive age related muscle loss. Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, I've seen those studies as well. And it's you know it's it is important to get that balance, right? Someone might uh, that balance of the four different things. There's resistance training. There's uh, like kind of zone two cardiovascular, like light exercise, uh, light to moderate exercise, which would be something like jogging or brisk walking or, you know, light swimming or light cycling, something like that. Um, even, even, you know, tennis at a, you know, easy to moderate level, these kinds of things, as well as a high intensity exercise, which is, I have a friend, um, I think she's almost 80. She lives in, uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and she, she does high intensity training, but she does it, she'll do like uh, two minutes, like kind of high intensity, usually body weight or light dumbbells, 
and then one or two minutes rest. Two minutes on, two minutes off. And she says it's changed her life and given her so much energy once she started doing this kind of HIT training. It's not like right. everyone has to go to a CrossFit gym and lift heavy barbells, but just getting that heart rate up, the blood flowing, lymphatic system, you know, pumping the, the neurons release, the, the neurochemicals released in the brain to make you feel good. It's like there's, I've found nothing as close to giving you a pure natural high uh, of feeling great than something like high intensity interval training. Um, and the it. studies show, right, as you age, it's, it's essential for your health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's really a missing component that I think uh, is really underemphasized. I think the kind of the powers to be. In fact, if you look, you know, I document how you know the recommendations for exercise have actually get smaller and smaller. Right. And now down to twenty something minutes a day. Um, and it's because, and they're very explicit about it because they want it to seem approachable, to doable, not intimidate people. And yes, it's true. Any amount of exercise is better than none. You know, frankly, you know, forget the patronizing attitude. Just give me the science. Tell me what's best. And look, you know, and and acknowledging that, you know, any is better than none. More is better than less. Um, but, you know, the message has not gotten through that, yes, a 15-minute walk is fantastic, better than nothing. But there are additional health benefits accrue to more uh, vigorous, uh, vigorous amounts and types of exercise. Yeah, absolutely. And then you said balance training in there as well. You know, one of the balance things that I do is Qigong. It's a great for balance. Yoga is great for balance. Tai Chi is great for balance. But again, you know, as you age, having balance is essential to preventing falls, as you've talked about, you know, having that yeah. sense of balance and um, dexterity and able to, to move and catch yourself and things like that. So you know, I do a 10 minute Qigong practice every morning. And that's something Very cool light the easy that everyone can do you know that helps with helps with balance that easy subtle movement um so in the book you also talk uh about telomeres we know telomeres are associated with longevity can you talk a little bit about you know what they are why they're important to to understand uh, and then we can talk about some things that we know help uh improve our telomere length for example sure telomeres are kind of protective caps at the tips of our chromosomes, kind of like the caps at the end of our shoelaces to keep our shoelaces from unraveling. Well, they keep our DNA from unraveling. And it's one of the uh, kind of aging pathways it really has kind of crept into public consciousness. Um, increasing telomere length um, uh, to slow or even prevent aging is a popular idea. The science is a little more kind of complicated than that. But um, uh, telomere elongation is possible through the activation of an enzyme called telomerase. Um, there's this constant battle between the forces that are hacking away at our telomeres, um, such as oxidative stress and inflammation, and the lifestyle decisions that can help kind of build them back up, which include quitting smoking, reducing our intake of refined grains, soda, processed meat, and dairy, while increasing our intake of fruits, vegetables, and other kind of antioxidant-rich foods. Um, and if we are low in vitamin D, meaning we have a vitamin D level under 20 nanograms per milliliter or 50 nanomoles per liter, um, supplementing with 800 to 2000 international units of D3 a day have also been shown to improve our telomere length. So is everyone born with a set telomere length? Uh, and does it grow and increase over time and then start to kind of get damaged and wither away um, uh, through oxidative stress and inflammation, and then you kind of can regrow it to its original length, for example, or do you, how does that work, do you know? 
Yeah, so we're basically born um, with uh, with full telomeres. Um, and then every time a cell divides, a little bit of the telomere is lost. Our cells, uh, and basically when our cells, uh, cells only divide about 50 times before they become senescent or, or basically are, are die off or unable to replicate. And that length of how many times it can replicate depend on telomere length. As soon as the telomeres are gone, we're gone. So it's been kind of it's a little oversimplified, but it's kind of like our life's fuse. When telomere is gone, we're gone too. The reason why it's a little more complicated than that is that our, our cell is only as healthy as our shortest telomere. So a lot of these studies measure average telomere length. And so you can show studies that, you know, randomize people to different diets and have better overall average telomere length or not. But actually what you want to know is what is the length of your shortest telomere? Because once mm -hmm. that gets critically short, game over, no matter how long your other telomeres are. So, um, so, uh, so with that caveat, and typically the same things that, uh, you know, improve average length, also improve the length of the shortest one. But it's just important to recognize um, that that's really what we're looking at, most kind of the critical factor. But yeah, inflammation, oxidation. So we can control that through healthy diet and lifestyle. So telom telomeres, the old thinking, what was the old thinking kind of like the old thinking around um, neurons uh, in the brain that you couldn't regrow? What was the old thinking around neurons in the brain? Yeah, like no, no, right. Regrow, right? Yeah, exactly, Telomeres, right. wasn't that the old thinking as well? Like yeah, you no, couldn't... no, yeah, you're right. Neurons, yeah. once they die, neurons don't replicate anymore. But once you become a neuron, that's it. And you're, so you only have as many neurons as basically you're born with. And so it just goes in one direction um, until there was this really dramatic experiment where they took people who were terminally ill um, and injected them with basically uh, this radioactive tag that tagged their DNA. And then after a few months when they died, actually looked into their brain and saw new nerve cells containing this uh, this marker showing that indeed, even late in life, we, neurogenesis is possible. We can make more nerve cells. And so that's like, oh, thank God, you know? So, I mean, I mean, still we want to decrease the things that are neurotoxic, you know, mercury exposure, alcohol, some other things, but at least there's, there's, there's a lot of hope there. And same thing with telomeres. I mean, we, with telomeres, we used to think they, you know, we're born with the longest and they just consistently get hacked down and maybe we can slow down the rate until they discovered this enzyme in literally Methuselah, which is a bristlecone pine tree. It's already lived thousands of years. It was actually, you know, it was came out of a seed before the Egyptian pyramids were there, one of the longest lived organisms on the planet. They found this enzyme called telomerase, which actually extended the telomeres. No wonder this tree could go on for thousands of years. And then once they knew what they were looking for, they went looking for it and they found it in rats and mice. And then finally in humans and aha, an enzyme that can actually elongate telomeres. And so even though, yes, on an average population level our telomeres every year get smaller and smaller as we age but on an individual basis it's not unusual to see people bounce around and so one year to next they can actually have longer telomeres and then shorter and over time they do tend to get um lower and lower but it, it, they're really we do have control uh to a certain extent something like air pollution um can hack away at our telomeres and we may or may not have the kind of mobility to be able to uproot ourselves and move to someplace with cleaner air. But these are factors that um, we have at least some semblance of control over. So could you just take a telomerase enzyme capsule and be done with it? 
just to supplement? Well, 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 um, well there's certainly been talk about using something like CRISPR technology to boost the the production of telomerase. The, cons the reason, so you have to take a step back a little bit and say, well, wait a second. Why would we evolve to have our telomeres disappear in the first place, right? Why put a hard cap on 50 cell divisions and call it done? It's because our bodies are trying to protect ourselves from cancer. So um, uh, shortening telomeres and the fact that there's only so many times a cell can divide um, is our, the, our body's way to kind of balance longevity with um, cancer promotion. Um, and so the concern is if we kind of artificially boost telomerase, might that enable cancer cells to uh, to survive longer? And indeed, cancer cells do kind of hijack telomerase mm. and use it um, use it to grow. Um, but thankfully, when you do this in in vitro, like in a petri dish, and you boost telomerase activity, it doesn't turn cells cancer. So it's not a sufficient initiator of cancer, but it can be a promoter of cancer once cancer is already there. So it doesn't. So adding more telomerase doesn't turn a cell into a cancer, but if it is already a cancer cell, it can use it um, to, to facilitate its growth. And the problem is, you know, so many of us may have these little microscopic tumors budding in our bodies that even though we don't think we have cancer, uh, maybe we have some little microscopic cancer somewhere. And so artificially, um, you know, uh, boosting telomerase too much uh, could be a problem, but we have not seen that with the lifestyle interventions that boost telomerase. Things that increase telomerase, like exercise, healthy diets, tend to be associated with lower cancer rates. And so we get the best of both worlds with these lifestyle interventions. Now with um, increasing telomeres and telomere length, um, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, exercise, some of these things. Now these, at least what I've seen are through studies have been associated with increasing are there any clinical trials you know? Oh, of yeah, that, no, that the, there are interventional trials. In fact, the first major one was Dr. Dean Ornish and Elizabeth Blackburn, who won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of telomerase. Um, and they showed for the first time in, intervention, in an interventional trial, randomized control trial, where you randomized people to a plant-based diet and lifestyle, the same one that Dean Ornish used to reverse heart disease, number one killer of men and women, put them on that and was able to show within months a boost of telomerase and then more importantly, followed them up five years later and could show that that increase in telomerase actually led to increased telomere length over time when of course it should be, and it continued to decrease in the control group, which was just told to you know follow whatever diet and lifestyle your doctor tells you to, which is typically very little. Um, and so that was the first to show, and there have been subsequent studies, um, but, uh, and so whether it was the anti-inflammatory nature of the diet or all the antioxidants, we're not exactly sure which component, um, uh, but, uh, but I mean, that, it's been shown that it's not just kind of a correlation, but actually proves cause and effect. Yeah, that's huge. And for those who don't know, the Dean Ornish program is basically, it's four aspects, right? It's a whole food, nutrient-dense, plant-based diet. It's a, you know, exercise uh, like stress reduction practices like meditation. And what was the fourth one? Well, smoking cessation, smoking cessation. Uh-huh. And was that the fourth one? Wasn't there something? Well, and there, so there's like social ties. That's part of the stress. Social, yeah. Yeah. The community. So they piece, do like right? group, yeah. they, you know, right. Yeah. Yeah. Community. Yeah. Which we know is, is essential for, for health and happiness and longevity. There's been a lot of studies on that. In fact. Um, okay. So basically to kind of, put a bow on that piece. Cause it's been really interesting. We can talk about telomeres for hours, but, um, what, 
you said is you know what what decreases telomere length is oxidative stress and inflammation right and so i guess question on that actually is what about you know healthy oxidative stress and healthy inflammation like from hormesis right hormetic stressors mm. like high intensity exercise right, right. sauna right, right. right no so they're not they're not pro-inflammatory and low oxidative stress in the long run that's the whole point of hormesis Although while, so for example, you take marathon runners, um, you actually get an increase in the amount of DNA breaks in their, you know, white blood cells, you just take a blood sample. And so, you know, at the end of a race, you can see up to 8% of their cells actually show physical breaks in their DNA. That's how much oxidative stress, how, how much free radical damage. Ah, but then follow them up a week later. Guess what? They have fewer DNA breaks than when they started in the first place. Oh, because wow. what it does is it revs up your DNA repair enzymes. So then just when you're walking around day to day, you have that increased level of protection. You know, that which doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Um, that's the whole hormesis reaction. So it's actually an overall anti um, uh, antioxidant activity. Same thing with inflammation. Yes, you can get the small little micro tears in your muscles and you see a bump in some of the inflammatory markers, but come back later after you recover, you don't just go back to baseline. You actually go down even lower. Your CRP, your IL-6, these, pro, these, these systemic markers of inflammation are actually better than you were before because you ramped up your kind of protective responses. You see the same thing with green tea and cruciferous vegetables. They actually cause um, they actually they activate the what is called nerf two system of antioxidant defense. The body actually sees cruciferous vegetables and green tea as a threat, um, and 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 basically ramps up defenses to 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 counter it. Um, and in doing so, this is a hormetic reaction. We actually end up better in the long run. That's huge. You just reminded me of an interview I did years ago with Ruth Heydrich. Who, oh yeah, yeah. You probably know Ruth. She's, I think she's like almost ninety by now. She's in her eighties, maybe early nineties, and she's run literally hundreds and hundreds of marathons, ultra marathons, Ironmans. She's won something like nine hundred medals, and she was diagnosed with a really aggressive breast cancer in her late forties. Switched to a whole food, plant based diet. Has been vegan ever since. So I think forty plus years, and has been doing all of this ultra endurance, you know, running and activities all of that time. And so there is this kind of thought or, or a lot of even, even let's say holistic doctors or functional medical doctors will say, well, yeah, a marathon is not good for you. It's too much damage. You know, running marathons all the time is actually going to break you down more. That's really fascinating what you just said, that study where, yeah, they had a you know massive decrease right after running the marathon, but a week later they actually where their DNA repair was better than it was before they ran the marathon. So it starts to kind of flip some of those ideas upside down. Yeah, no, down. no, absolutely. Now, I mean, right. Well, when you say marathons all the time, you can overstress, you can't overdo it. Look, exercise is medicine, is powerful. And like medicine, right, there's a safe dosing range, right? I think the reason you don't hear about, you know, people overdoing it is because it's a very tiny fraction, right? Most people are, aren't getting their asses off the couch. And so the big public health message is, look, just got to start moving. Right. And, you know, they're not talking, but it's true. I'm um, studies. Um, you can actually overdo it. You need to allow 
your body time to recover. And if you don't, you can do these, you can get this kind of accumulative stress. Um, but uh, but with sufficient recovery time, you just kind of get all, all the, the pros without the cons. So in the book, you say bacon causes cancer. Uh, what causes know? cancer? Bacon. 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 Oh, bacon. bacon. Cancer. Yes. Bacon. Yeah. <laughs> um, we know people are going to hate that. We know bacon yeah. and processed meat is right. a, you know, a classified as a carcinogen. Right. Um, and, you know, before I was plant-based, I used to love bacon. You know, I grew up on meat and sure. potatoes in Montana. Yeah. Um, but for those who love their bacon, help explain why it causes cancer. Yeah, yeah. No, look, uh, you know, lots of really great stuff causes <laughs> Cause cancer, like bacon, you know, alcohol, right? Alcohol is carcinogenic too, right? It's metabolized in the acetaldehyde, which is a known human carcinogen. So it's all about look, it doesn't matter what you eat on your birthday, your holidays, special occasions, right? Um, and so, you know, these really should be kind of special, you know, occasion, you know, treat kind of foods. We should really savor it. We should get the best quality. You know, we could, you know, it's the people that are just like chomping bacon while they're watching TV and they've gone through a whole plate. They didn't even enjoy it. It's like, ah, oh, you're killing me. And look, a little bit can go a long way. Right. And so rather than thinking like a big hunk of, you know, you know, animal protein on the plate, right. Using it as a flavoring, as a condiment, as a, you know, little pieces of bacon crumbled in and, you know, to a lot of healthy food, um, you know, can help the, the broccoli to go down a little better. But um yeah, the problem the problem with uh, bacon and these other processed meats like bacon, ham, hot dogs, lunch meat, sausage, are these nitrosamines and nitrosamides, which are carcinogenic compounds, which are created when the nitrites, which are preservatives that are added um, to 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 cure meat, uh, combines with the amides and amines that's found in the meat to create these nitrosamines and nitrosamides, which um, end up uh, causing us problems. Now you say, well, wait a second, why don't I get nitrite free? Bacon, right. you see that advertised all the time. It's always going to have an asterisk. You follow the asterisk to the bottom, it's going to say, you know, uh, fermented celery juice or something like that. You know what that means? Nitrites. Because there's nitrates in celery and they add bacteria to ferment the nitrates into nitrites. So they're basically adding nitrites, but just doing it in a way that, you know, that misinforms the consumer. By law, they have to have some form of nitrates in there. Otherwise, um, people die of botulism. They, that's why nitrites are added to processed meat. Um, so if you are going to eat meat, unprocessed meat um, is less harmful, uh, particularly uh, game, wild game that's not shot with lead ammunition, um, tends to be extraordinarily low in saturated fat, moose, elk, etc. Um, and so look, there's a whole spectrum, just like some plant foods are way healthier than others, right? There's lettuce on one end, kale on the other. Um, you know, there's uh, animal foods, I have a wide spectrum as well. And we can always just try to ratchet our health a little better. Food is kind of a zero-sum game, right? Every time we put something in our mouth, there's an opportunity cost, like a, a lost opportunity to put something even healthier in our mouth. So food isn't so much good or bad as it is better or worse. So, you know, are, you know, are, is, uh, you, you know, are eggs good for you? Well, I mean, compared to the breakfast sausage, definitely, right? Compared to oatmeal, uh, not even close, right? Uh, is fish good for you? Well, compared to, uh, you know, tuna fish better than a bologna sandwich, but, you know, a hummus wrap would be healthier, right? I mean, so 
we can always just kind of, you know, move ourselves along this spectrum towards eating healthier. And it doesn't take much. You know, I, you know, I don't want people to get lost in the weeds here. Those simple things, um, you know, the, the not being obese, moving, more fruits and vegetables, not smoking, can meet a decade of healthy life expectancy right on the table. And then, yes, that'll get you 80% there. You want to work on that, the, the on the margins on that last little bit, then there's all sorts of great advice we can give people. But let's not, you know, let's not lose the main thrust here in that it doesn't take much to uh to 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 you know to age more successfully so one of the big issues that we run into today when comparing a plant-based diet to a, an animal-based diet and where most doctors who are promoting an animal-based diet today will will tell people they will say look there's no real studies that compare like a whole food plant-based diet to what would be considered from them as a healthy animal-based diet, which would be, let's say, grass-fed beef with organ meat, um, game meat, as you said, and even including either fruits and fruits or vegetables. And so they basically throw out the plant-based and say, you know, there's there's no comparison there um, because we don't have studies comparing those two. It's usually compared against let's say a standard American diet, which is include a lot of processed food, you know, a lot of uh, white flour and white sugar. Sure. And so of course a plant-based diet is going to look better and that's got real food in it. Um, right. So what, what would you say to that? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Anything looks better than anything gets people to cut down on donuts is a good thing. Right. Right. So, so, so people go on like a paleo diet or whatever, or a gluten-free diet or anything cuts out donuts. <laughs> I mean, across the board, you go on a don't eat anything that starts with a D diet. You're good, right? Um, and so I, I think that's, that's, that point is very well taken. Now, for, the, for someone to come out and say, look, there's never been any studies um, showing my diet is, uh, you know, my diet is better or worse than anything. That is not a, <laughs> it's not a ringing endorsement. The fact that there's no evidence um, uh, you know, the fact there's no studies, um, it, it, that, I mean, the most important thing we can do in terms of our, uh, longevity, our vitality, our health is what we put at the end of our four. And so we need to make these decisions based on evidence. And so if you're advocating a diet that's never been studied, that's a concern. Um, we do have, um, dietary indexes where basically they take, you know, like the Harvard cohorts, hundreds of thousands of men and women. And then they rate their diet on like a, a, a like a, a, a plant-based eating score. And so you get points if you eat any plant foods, you get points deducted if you eat any animal foods. And then you can just see, oh, if you eat more and more plantish or a little less plant, and you can see this straight line, um, you know, increase in longevity, a straight line decrease in all-cause mortality, the more you decrease meat, eggs, dairy. Now, having said that, if you... Um, there's a healthy plant-based diet index than an unhealthy plant-based diet index. Right. Um, it, the, you only see those remarkable benefits if you're replacing those animal foods with healthy plant foods. If you switch from animal foods to these ultra-processed crap like chips and soda and vegan donuts, you're not going to see the benefits. So that suggests that the downsides of eating an animal-based diet is less the the detrimental effects of the animal products themselves and more the benefits of the plant foods. And so, you know, I'd rather see someone 
eating a diet with a lot of animal products, that's eating lots of fruits and vegetables, um, that's eating lots of healthy plant foods versus some, you know, junk food vegan somewhere who, yeah, they cut down on animal products, but they're not actually eating whole plant foods. So I think that's that's kind of a, a critical point. Um, uh, you know, these labels like vegetarian, vegan, that just as a physician, that tells me what you don't eat. I mean, do you actually eat vegetables? And in fact, when they ask people who are self-proclaimed paleo um, people, um, the biggest difference between people eating paleo and the standard American diet, I mean, you'd think, oh, you know, the the, the stereotype, oh, they're eating more meat or something. No, a standard American diet eats so much meat, there actually isn't much of a differential. What's the biggest difference? They eat more vegetables. People eat who claim they're eating a paleo diet eat more vegetables. Hallelujah. Fantastic. That's great, right? And so no wonder you see benefits from that kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, basically the health of one's diet, the way I think of it is the percentage of your diet that's composed of these whole healthy plant foods. So you're minimizing both the processed foods, animal, animal foods, but you have to have those um, good foods in there or you're just not going to get the benefits. Right. Like heme iron, for example, from animal foods has been shown to increase oxidative stress. And when they looked at studies where someone was, you know, eating quite a bit of animal products and including vegetables, the vegetables seem to reduce that oxidative exactly. stress from the heme iron. From yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. You like putting avocado on a burger actually decreases the oxidative stress and inflammation. Um, you know, adding uh strawberries like five large strawberries not a lot of strawberries to like a really nasty breakfast um uh, significantly decreased that postprandial stress um and so they were eating the same amount of crap but just adding the strawberries on top actually significantly reduced so you know again it's not all or nothing there's things we can do um to you know to kind of moderate the impacts of these foods. So it's not about, oh, never eating these foods ever again. It's like, well, what can we do to, you know, save it for the special occasions or what else can we add to our diets to kind of mediate some of the negative impacts? Yeah, I agree. I think that's a great way to approach it. Now you talk about soy in, in the book and, you know, I've been talking about soy for years. I've been a big proponent of soy. I eat soy very often. I always promote organic soy, of course, non-GMO, not filled with mm -hmm. chemicals, not genetically modified. But I always, and I'm sure you do as well, I always get people commenting and questioning and sending me emails. Well, doesn't soy you know, cause men to grow breasts? Doesn't it increase your estrogen? It's got phytoestrogen. You know, we know it doesn't. We know the studies show that it doesn't. But I'd love for you to talk a little bit about soy. It's We know it's protective against cancer. It's actually protective against um, excess estrogen production in the body. It actually does the opposite of what people think right. it does because <laughs> right. it, it blocks our beta cell receptors, estrogen, preventing things like xenoestrogens from entering into our system and causing havoc with our endocrine system. Uh, you know, it's been shown to prolong life and reduce all-cause mortality. It's been eaten for thousands of years by billions of people around the planet. Um, but yeah, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about soy and why yeah. people shouldn't be afraid <laughs> yeah, of it. No, no, <laughs> yeah, you really nailed it. Right. And so look, I mean, you can take a step back and just be like, okay, the, the country with the largest soy intake by far in the world, Japan, they also have the longest life expectancy. 
um, you know, some of the lowest rates of these hormone-dependent cancers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you can do interventional trials. You can randomize people um, to soy or even just the soy isoflavone uh, phytonutrients um, in supplement form and to take out all other variables and see significant improvements in bone strength, for example, some of these other benefits. So, yeah, I, I mean, one of the reasons why the Okinawa Japanese, their um, primary source of protein was uh, was tofu. Um, tofu and miso, two soy products, um, and had the second longest live uh, um, uh, survival in human history, um, second only to the vegetarian uh, Adventist uh, um, in uh, Loma Linda, Loma Linda. Yeah. and they are eating these, you know, soy-based kind of meat analogs, you know, uh, that have been put to the test against the organic grass-fed um, meat. I mean, one of the rare studies where they did take the highest quality meat they could find and pitted it up against, you know, these Beyond Meat products, which are processed, have coconut oil, have sodium, have all things that you'd expect um, would be detrimental, yet still beat out the best meat that um, that could be found. Um, did not beat out on blood pressure because it had the same sodium content, but because there was lower saturated fat, got better LDL, got less TMAO, um, actually got a little weight loss, has a little fiber in it. So I'm not saying that these are, you know, the, these are the paragons of health, but I'm saying they're good kind of stepping stone foods, transition foods to move towards a healthier diet. Um, and many of them are soy based. And that may be one of the reasons why the longest lived formerly studied population in the world are those that eat these large amounts of soy products. So the only study I've been able to find that actually showed, um, a detriment from eating soy. And I think this is the one that most people probably reference. They probably hear this study or see a headline about it and they go, Oh, soy is bad for you. Cause I could only find one. And uh, and it wasn't that bad, but it was, and I, and I have to look it up again, but it was not soy in a whole food form or tofu or tempeh or miso. It was soy protein isolate. And so it makes me um, think that, you know, and then when you look at all the other studies with soy that are the whole food, you always see an improve, improvement across the board, right? In reduction of cancer risk and um, all cause mortality and, and all kinds of benefits to the body, you know, hormone balancing, et cetera. But with soy protein isolate, um, where you take it out of its original, you know, and process it heavily, that makes me think of, well, maybe that's why they saw detriment in that study. And then people just associate that with, oh, all soy is bad for you. Yeah. And when you get up to about 25 grams of that soy protein isolate, you can actually get a bump in IGF-1 that you'd see, you know, eating, uh, eating lots of meat. Um, you know, it's so funny to hear, you know, men talking about um, phytoestrogens when the single most potent phytoestrogen we know of on the planet is actually found in beer, which is a hoppian, which is HPN, which is, I mean, m women handling hops in the fields actually start menstruating. It's so estrogenic. Why uh, alcoholic men get man boobs, why they form actually a, a, a female shaped pubic hair. Um, all these these female characteristics from the phytoestrogen in beer of all manly foods. Yet you don't hear people be like, oh, I don't drink beer. Got those phytoestrogens <laughs> um, where, you know, you have those anti-estrogenic effects, as you noted, um, with the soy foods. Um, so, yeah, although beer drinkers do have stronger bones and that is because of that uh, that uh, estrogenic effect.
Yeah, and I remember because I was looking, I was trying to figure out, well, where did they even get this? Obviously, estrogen, people just assume the word phytoestrogen, right? But it's an isoflavone. It's it's actually protective, as we've been talking about. But I found a case study of a 60-year-old man who they found um, had, you know, uh, what do they call it when actually you start growing boobs as a man? It's mass... Gynecomastia, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, gynecomastia. And this was like one case study, and they even talked about, if you read the study, it was like, this is very unusual... We're not as sure it's associated with the man-eating soy, and we almost never, ever have seen this before. <laughs> and, like, people look at one case study ever out of, like, billions of people, and they go, oh, this causes man boobs. Like, it's it's pretty wild. Yeah. Um. Uh, there was also – there's a case report on flaxseed oil um, also with gynecomastia. Someone was – a man was taking a tablespoon of flaxseed oil. There are these uh, phytoestrogens called lignans found in flaxseeds, which are good for you. But at the same time, they're taking a statin drug, and statin drugs can actually cause gynecomastia. Mm. Statin drugs are the most commonly prescribed drug on planet Earth. And so anytime you see a case of gynecomastia, you always have to think, uh, okay, let's make sure they weren't on a statin drug because that can do it idiosyncratically. Yeah. So message is, you know, soy, preferably organic in its whole food form. Don't be afraid oh, yeah. of it. Whole food form. Yeah, yeah. So something like tempeh, we actually see the whole soybeans, uh, you know, it's preferable to even tofu. To tofu is super healthy food, but uh, whole food for like the edamame, the, the fresh green soybeans in a pod. Kids love to snack on them. Um, yeah, lots of good ways. And um, helpful for cutting down on, on uh, postmenopausal vasomotor symptoms like hot flashes and night sweats. Uh, so it can be, yeah, uh, particularly useful in the context of aging. So I know um, we've only got two minutes left to kind of leave people with the 30 second or one minute kind of final closing message on how not to age. Obviously, uh, I encourage people to go get the book. It's a fantastic book. It goes deep dive into a lot of things we didn't even get to cover today, like microRNAs, uh, AMPK, um, you know, the benefit of beans and, and so much more. So go get a copy of the book. Uh, on Amazon, any other place people should should get it or just head to Amazon or to your website? Yeah, no, no, wherever. Yeah, where you can go to your local public library and get there it, we go. right? Um, uh, uh, yeah, it'll be out uh, December 5th. Um, super excited uh, for it to, to finally make its way out there. And we'll have a How Not to Age cookbook coming next December uh, 2024. Beautiful. So kind of closing message on some key to wrap up key things people should think about in improving longevity lifespan and health span uh you know just the important look it's your body it's your choice right you want to smoke cigarettes go bungee jumping not wear your seatbelt whatever right it's up to each of us to make our own decisions as to what to eat how to live but we really should make these choices consciously right educating ourselves about the predictable consequences of our actions and so that's what the book is meant to do here's the pros and cons um, and then it's really up for you to decide. Awesome. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. Appreciate it, man. Time flies uh, when you're having fun. Um, thanks for sharing all this great knowledge and wisdom. Uh, appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Anytime. So glad to be on. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank you. And again, everybody, How Not to Age from Dr. Michael Greger. Uh, you can go grab a copy wherever books are sold and uh, wish you so much health and happiness. Take care.